0: What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions shared are those of your host and our guest. Today, we sit down with Matt Shields. He's a fire captain in the city of Phoenix and also a former Army Ranger. He is an all-around good guy slash badass. And we have a great conversation talking about all things leading up to his career in the fire service and things that he's learned while he's here. It's a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy. Matt, welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to talk to you. um, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of your experiences as a fire captain and the things that you've learned. And and I want to talk to you about um, your experience in the Army and, uh, you know, how that, you know, how inadequate you feel that you're not a Marine. And, uh, that's cute. That's cute. And, uh, you know, those kind of things. And, um, you know, and the journey, I want to talk to you about the journey that you took to get to this place, to become a captain, you know, in the, uh, you know, large fire department in the Southwestern United States that rhymes with Phoenix, right? Yeah, you know that's a there's a journey in there, and in that journey, uh, we learn so much. and And I want to hear kind of your perspective and take on how you got here, how you got to where you are, and you know, um, take me back. How did how did you get here? Where did you Where did you grow up?
1: Um, so I was born and raised in Cave Creek, uh, Arizona, local boy. Yeah, yep. Grandfathered in before it was fancy North Scottsdale. <laughs> uh, I was born at PV Hospital. Um my uh uncle was on the fire department and so i had been riding along who was your uncle barry richards
0: oh okay retired
1: about 10 years ago okay uh bls engineer um
0: so when i was about 12 or 14 let's just be honest so backbone of the fire department right there bls engineers oh yeah oh yeah and hazmat
1: (laughs) indeed there it is (laughs) goodness gracious Uh, but so I got to start coming to the fire station like 12 or 14 and very quickly realized that that seemed like about the best job I was ever going to be able to score in my life. So kind of in the back of my head, I I knew that was where I wanted
0: to end up. So at that age, what was it about the fire service that attracted you though? You see, it's the best job you could ever have, but like what? Well, made good money.
1: Yeah. Um, and I was, when I came home from the hospital, I came home to a single wide, so never in a million years thought that I'd be making anywhere close to what we have the ability to make. Yeah. Um, and then just, they had such a good time, the fellowship, the, it, you know, being able to help people while you're having fun, taking care of the team, doing, you know, it just, there wasn't any part of it that didn't seem appealing to me. Nice. Um so then throughout high school I uh was really good at making uh bad decisions and uh got myself to the position where as I was getting ready to graduate high school, I knew there was no chance that I was gonna be going to like college, like university stuff. Mm, yeah. And recognized that if I didn't come up with some sort of hard reset I would be uh, not doing well for uh, the rest of my adult life. So um, I actually tried to join the Marines first. And when I went to the recruiter, I told him that I had uh, asthma. I had asthma pretty bad as a kid. And they immediately told me that uh, I was not eligible and couldn't join. And that was one of the best things that ever happened. Was, uh well, you know, <laughs> the, yeah, it's because
0: the marine corps standards are so high. Obvious, <laughs> obviously.
1: Um but so uh I worked at the Satisfied Frog up in Cave Creek um and one of the food runners there was a old ranger from Vietnam. Mm. And he was the one that talked me into, like, if you were going to join the military and you want to go try and pick fights, like, that's a pretty good unit to get into if you want to go try and pick fights. Yeah. And so I was... What it, About what year was this? Uh, I graduated in '03, So this was 2002-ish. Um, you know, I talked to him quite a bit. Well, I worked there from when I was 16 until I uh, I left for the Army when I was 19, like... Less than a year after graduating high
0: school. Yeah.
1: Um, And so when I went to the Army recruiter and MEPS, I told them that I had never been sick a day in my life and that I had never broken any bones and that everything was perfect. And they looked at me very skeptical, but obviously (laughs) they didn't do any sort of good background
0: checks. Right. Because it worked out. Nice. They just let you swipe around through. So the asthma thing just went away. And how, well, how did your asthma, did you have asthma? Or oh yeah, no, at? I had it, I had it like, uh, I think I, I was lucky
1: in that the majority of it went away through puberty. Right. But so I'll still, out of it. yeah, I'll still get it every, like, uh, I still have an inhaler at home mm-hmm. and like if there's a bad weather change or if I get sick, like it can go respiratory. I, I imagine a little more often than others, but I can, it's fine.
0: Nice. Good. Cause I think about your track and uh, a lot of cardio uh, involved there, mm-hmm. a lot of heavy breathing involved, a lot of work. So, but I, like I was always, um,
1: we, I grew up on land. My dad always uh, had a construction company and then we always had horses. My next door neighbor owned a plant nursery and a landscaping company. So I grew up always outside, always having to work. And so I think that I kind of worked it out a little bit too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when you went into the army, did you have a, were you intent on being a ranger? Was that the plan? Yes. So
1: I was initially promised the recruiters for the military are the biggest used car salesmen on the planet. They showed me a video of dudes riding jet skis. I still ain't never seen army jet ski that you could use on bases. Were they like the jet skis that were like OD green, or these are? This no, like... they're like, oh no, on your bases. There's recreational spots, and oh, you can go and yeah. use these and take them out, and uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so I had, uh, so I did get in my contract that if I met all the prerequisites, I would have a spot in selection, which at the time was. RIP, the ranger indoctrination process. Now it's RASP, ranger assessment and selection process, I think. So had that, but went on the day that I was supposed to like sign. I'm in the main office, and thank God my dad was there with me, and my dad doesn't put up with much BS. Um, They had told me that last day, like, oh, we can't actually get you a ranger contract, but if, as long as you're the top of basic infantry and airborne school, they'll offer you a spot. And me being nervous and thinking I'm already basically in the army at that point, it's like, Oh yes, sir. You know, I'll take what I could get And my dad's like, no, no, no bullshit. We're walking right now. If you don't put in his contract that he's got a slot, a slot in selection. I was like, you can't talk to him like that. It's
0: like, I'm not in the army. Okay. Stop for a second. Isn't that so interesting how, when we're young, We're so, I mean, and I appreciate sometimes that, you know, authority has uh, sway over us in a lot of ways. However, learning to advocate for ourselves comes with maturity and time in, right? And man, I wish I had learned that at a younger age, how to self-advocate. Because there's so many times when people are looking out for their interest and not necessarily yours. As is the case right here, this recruiter had had a bill that he had to fill in one spot. And he was like, well, I bet I can get him over here. Ah, that's frustrating to me.
1: I think it's because before we learn better, we take everything at face value. Of why would anybody tell us anything other than right, exactly
0: what it is and how it's supposed to be? Right. And Especially the, the recruiter, he's he's my advocate, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, why would he? Why would he lie to me? Yeah. How dare you do something like that? Right. So what happened when your dad
1: pushed back? Magically. <laughs> They said, okay, well, give me some time. Magically, they came back with in like 20 minutes. And we're like, okay, we figured it out, and we've got him locked in. He's got it. As long as he makes all his prerequisites, he's got a spot in selection. So signed up. It ended up delaying my leaving from mm-hmm. like when I signed. It was like seven months before I went to basic.
0: Which is another pressure point, right? Because of the times when guys are going in and signing up, they're like, I got to go. <laughs> I'm ready to leave right now. Because you're young and you think the world is, you know, not going to wait for you, right? Or that time is, you know, like so critical. You know, seven months is an eternity. Yeah, or is my
1: dumb ass going to do something in the seven months <laughs> that makes me ineligible? Right. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do in those seven months? Worked. And then, um, like, if you did... So much pre-work and P- PT test stuff. You could go in as uh, E3, a, a private first class, rather than just a private. Right. So I did all that stuff, um, you know, and really got ready. I didn't tell my mom that I was going join in the Army until after I signed. Mm-hmm. So she was not happy at all. Yeah. Um,
0: Had anybody in your family
1: previously served? My, uh, my uncles on my mom's side, Barry was in the Marines. Uh, and two of my uncles were in the air force, um, and retired out of the air force. And Barry would always make fun of him that his retirement as a truck driver paid more than their retirement flying planes in the air force, which is awesome. Um, nobody on my dad's side was in the army or in the military,
0: um, yeah. So was that that contribute to your mom's resistance? You think? I would say it was. Well, I was her
1: only child, and um, just her knowing me and that I don't really have a great uh, identifying myself being in harm's way. <laughs> so
0: she was just worried about. Yeah, that. and he. And let's be honest, man. You're always you're always your mama's baby. No matter how old you are, oh yeah, and so it's it's hard for moms to see their you know kids go off to war and or even just join the military during peacetime. Either way, right? But you're going in during the middle of the whereas the GWAT's unfolding. Mm-hmm. So um, so you go into boot camp, right? You head you head off to boot camp. What's that like for you? I was. I don't know anything about army boot camp. Apparently, it's a cakewalk from what I understand.
1: Well, I'm <laughs> not going to deny that. Too hard. <laughs> it was not. Uh... It was fun and exciting and like I had never like I moved out of my house as soon as I graduated high school and like got an apartment and was pretty independent but still had never been more than 10 miles away from family Mm. and so the getting shipped off to the other side of the country and needing to be totally self-sufficient I think is great for a 19-year-old I'm trying to become a man. Yeah,
0: I agree. Where did you end up going? You said Fort ben- Benning. Oh, okay. Fort Benning. That's in Georgia, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I was, I was hoping
1: it was going to be a little harder than it was. Um, it wasn't as bad as you. And who knows what it is now today. But it wasn't quite as crazy as like, oh, you get timeouts or anything like that. You still got yell, you know, like you got screamed at and stuff like that. But I was wanting some like full metal jacket, some crazy shit. And yeah. that never happened.
0: That's The one thing I will say that I've learned over the years is that Marine Corps boot camp, that pipeline specifically is incredibly intense. All the other schools after that are pretty mild, you know, by comparison to boot camp. And I think about like so when you go into a selection pipeline, very different story right which is funny to me because the boot camp doesn't necessarily prepare you but you come out of marine corps boot camp you are ready to rock and roll um because of the intensity of it i'm sure everyone gets a little something different out of it but um i had a great time actually when i think you know i think back to it i had a lot of fun in it but it's uh so you're expecting it to be a little more intense yeah i was thinking i'd get yelled at a little bit more um I mean, they did
1: all of that stuff, but I, you know, like in your head, you've got it built up like this is going to be the hardest thing in the world. And then yeah. my dad yells at me more than this. <laughs> um, so that was because I was infantry. The basic training was ran straight into infantry school. So the whole thing ended up, it was like, it's 14 weeks, I think, or it was 14 weeks Uh, graduated that. When you graduate that, because it was infantry, that's when you get your blue infantry sash, whatever the thing is. Uh, And then the next step was going to airborne school, static line, which was also in Benning. Just kind of cross campus, basically? Yeah. Um, And that was pretty easy. Airborne school was not uh, physically difficult but like i don't like heights very much so that was interesting yeah
0: i was gonna say because planes fly at heights yeah (laughs) what are they what's the uh when you guys do a static line drop what are you jumping from because they're not super high no it's not super high i don't know how high it can get but
1: like when we would do so uh ranger regiments specialty is airfield seizures and so every time that we would come back from being overseas, like every six month break that we'd be in country, in country here, mm-hmm. we do a practice airfield seizure somewhere around the country. And when you do those, you're jumping between like six and 800 feet. Oh, wow. Blacked out in the middle of the night. Right. And so it is not long at all yeah. from when the chute opens to when you slam into the ground. What, what, approximately how long? Minute? No way, because you, no. Not um, even? No, like you jump out of the plane, and I would jump out of the plane and go, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, and then your chute would open all the way up, and then you're trying to orient yourself, um, and you've got all your shit is in front, your rucksack and your weapon systems all in front of you, so oh. you don't want to hit the ground with that attached to you. Um, right. So you've got a. Pull cord that you pull that makes that stuff drop down to be, I don't know, 15 feet below you. Okay. But if you pull that cord too early, it turns into a pendulum Ooh. and you'll just start rocking back and forth. So you want to try and time it so you pull that right as you're crossing about the tree line. So okay. you're only a couple of seconds before you hit, you pull that. Okay. Well, what often happens because all of this is happening so quickly. And they, they'll shut down all the lights on the airfield, so you can't orient very well. You'll end up thinking you're about at that right spot, and you'll pull it. And as soon as you pull it, you'll hear that hit the ground, and then you'll go, oh, shit, you know, and then you'll slam into the ground right afterwards. Ow. So that happens very, Yeah, there ain't much time that you're in the air.
0: Yeah. So I've heard people talk about the a PLF, right, parachute landing fall. How, which, can you just okay, first of all, describe what that is to folks who don't know, who are unoriented to a PLF. What is that? I I guess it's the best way to fall without injuring yourself. Okay, which doesn't make sense to me, because I hear so many stories about guys getting injured, jumping, knees, ankles, backs. So so as best as I understand it, with the chute
1: opening, or with the chute open, you're falling at like 18-ish something feet a second still. So pretty fast. Pretty fast because you don't want to be floating down getting shot at either. Fair enough. (laughs) But like the average human can break their ankle at like 21 feet a second falling. So there's not a huge threshold there. So every single jump, if you've got 300 people that are jumping, 10 people are hurting something a couple are breaking something every single jump if the wind was bad or whatever like 30 people might get messed up right there's a there's definitely some accepted injury with any jump Mm.
0: um yeah so a plf when you are coming down i mean you got it i mean i would think okay this is the hard part right you got to anticipate the ground coming right and then you try to go like when you hit the ground you're trying to go like knees hip You try and and go
1: sideways if you can, and your feet have to be together, and it's really just like a coordinated way of collapsing onto the ground. So you just try and distribute it as you go from your heels to your calf to your thighs to then kind of your butt, and you kind of just roll. Okay. Okay. And it don't ever, like, the way that it goes when you're standing three feet up on a platform and, like, you're practicing compared to what actually happens Right, is never very close. <laughs> but if your feet aren't together, yeah. you've got a way higher chance of breaking something. Right. Like, your feet being together is the first most important thing.
0: Yeah. And I, ima- you know, so that's what I'm saying. Like, I, as I'm thinking about this, I'm imagining in blackout conditions, anticipating that impact and then... And then being able to execute the PLF has got to be really difficult to do. Yeah, because your directions are you moving with the wind, et cetera?
1: Well, and you're hoping that you don't like so half of it's grass and half of it's tarmac. You're hoping right. you don't land on the tarmac. And then even <laughs> or worse, fence post or the stupid lights that they have sticking up at the airfields everywhere. Right, right. So you're just hoping that. And then once <laughs> you get on the ground, you're like, I hope none of my shit broke. Wow. and then you're laying there and you put all your pull all your stuff together, you load your weapon system, you put you have to h- hook your nods up and put your nods on cuz that ain't out when you're jumping. Right. Um and then you've got to like the for the airfield seizures, the combat controllers with the air force jump out too and like they throw mini bikes out and shit and so <laughs> they're very quickly ripping up and down the airfield cuz they want to get the planes down quick, mm. so we got to get all of our parachute stuff, get it all covered up, get it at least however many feet off the runway. Because once we're on the ground, planes are coming down super quick behind us. So you don't want to get run over or one of your parachutes suck into the motor. Right. Uh, and so, really, like you, you get on the ground and you're like, okay, I'm not injured. I got to keep doing this. Now. How many
0: guys are jumping in a, in a evolution like this? Well, a
1: platoon. Is about 30 people. And then with all of our support people with us, it's probably in about 40-ish. And I would imagine that you're not going to try and do an airfield without at least... I'm saying at least two or three companies, which would be probably six six or nine platoons. So there's a whole bunch of people in the air at one time right? coming down. And then, you know, you'd like... You'll have your, you'll pull up your map of what your first objective was. And then you just kind of go and meet at the rally point for that and start.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause I imagine your stick is going to land in different places. So you got to get your group together and try to get, coordinate. Right. And that's so you, just the start of the night. Right. Yeah. That's just the beginning of the evolution. Yeah. So yeah. get them on the ground and then you go from there. So, so uh, there's, I know that. So you went to Rangers or sorry, you went to uh jump school. So what's the pipeline after that? So after airborne school
1: was, I had to wait a couple of weeks or whatever for RIP to start the ranger Ranger indoctrination process, which for ranger regiment is the selection, just like BUDS is for SEALs. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was six weeks. I can't remember if it was four weeks or six weeks, but it was miserable. That was the f- physically the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Easy, um, and really, it's just a bunch of sick ways to try and get you to quit and like uh, turn on your partners and stuff like that.
0: Give me an example.
1: Um, well, like when it started, uh, like the first day that you get the, on the buses and you get to the barracks. They're, you know, like, they're smoking you for a while, and it was raining that first day, uh, and then they left us, you know, like, they're saying they're in-processing us, and leave your shit here, and go and stand in, at attention here in front of the building, and they're talking to you, and then they're like, okay, well, we'll be back in, like, we'll be back in a couple of minutes, we gotta figure something out, you guys don't move. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, then you're stand like, three hours later, we're standing there at attention, like there's no way they forgot about us. Like what's going, you know, and then you yeah. get somebody in there. are like, this is bullshit. I'm going to go see what's going on. Like, well, I'll go with you and come back. And well, you know, those two people just got kicked out of selection because they didn't stand still when they were told not to move. And so, you know, like something like that happens a couple hours into the first day. And you're like, Oh my God, none of us are going to survive this. Right. Um, and then like <laughs> we had when we were out in the field, which we were out in the field for the majority of it, It was a, there was, the wood line was like 200 meters away and they would say, go and touch the wood line. And you'd go and touch the wood line and they come back and they say, okay, now I want you to go and touch that tree. And you'd never be able to find the stupid tree that they were talking about. And then you'd come back and be like, are you screwing with me? I said, go touch that tree over there. And you, you don't want to touch that tree. Okay. I guess you're in charge. Now you guys (laughs) carry this log and then you're running with a telephone pole over there and come back and they're like oh well you know like you still didn't do something right now i want you to low crawl over there so if you're crawling for an hour to touch this stupid tree and crawling back uh and just like the the sick things that they can do like body weight just to make you you don't even need weights oh, to be yeah. exhausted
0: yeah yeah i remember this is you know, just so sort of the similar mind game right is holding your finger out your index finger out and holding your your weapon by the, the front sight, and just hold it there. <laughs> and it's not, you know, what's it weigh, like 6 to 11 pounds, something like that, right? somewhere in there? And uh, I don't remember, but that is the heaviest weight possible on the planet at that point. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. It's out at the extended tip of your finger, you know? Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, or holding your footlocker over your head for extended periods of time until yeah, you're we just do. a quivering mass of... <laughs> Goo, you know, but the mind game there, uh, you know, designed to strip you down of your ego and strip you down of your oneness, right? And and have you work as a team. A 100%. Yeah. You would get in,
1: if you were the first one done with anything, you'd be damn near in as much trouble as the last one done because you're just taking care of yourself. <laughs> you're not taking care of the group. Yeah. And so that was, a lot of that stuff was putting you in stressful situations to see if it will, if you're going to be able to keep everybody together or right. if you get to the point where you're so burned out, you're like, I'm only taking care of myself at this point. I'm done.
0: Right. Well, what kind of academic stuff are they doing during that? Advanced infantry skills or... I mean, they're doing drills and stuff like
1: that, but the intent isn't to teach you things. It's right. to... I'm going to show this to you that you're no way going to understand the concepts of in the hour or two that I'm going to go over it with you and then I'm going to try and make you execute it like you've been doing it for 10 years but really it's just a it's just all part of the games of I want to see how well you retain information, how well you manage impossible situations. Under, under duress. Yeah. Yeah. Um what was super cool that I didn't that I just connected the dots with uh, with being here is so from Black Hawk down mm-hmm. um, the medic gets shot in the groin in the movie and you know in real life and uh, and ends up dying and so they um, there was a huge review of that incident afterwards mm-hmm. uh, because it was a I mean they didn't really know it at the time but it was a preventable cause of death and. That guy got killed super early in that mission, and so they had no medical capabilities moving forward from that. And so they were like, okay, well, what are we going to do about this moving forward? Well, the first phase of it came out as ranger first responder, which was that every single ranger was trained in uh, IVs, needle decompression, uh, NPAs. Um, and they had that big gnarly chest IO. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. Um, and so every single Ranger was going to be trained in Ranger first responder. Hmm. Well, they, they introduced that in selection. And, uh, basically it was like, we just want to see these guys take needles, (laughs) bury them in each other's arms. (laughs) Like people were burying needles up to the hilt in there where their AC should be. Uh Like it was funny in medic school when I learned, you know, like that you're not supposed to, how you're actually
0: supposed to do it (laughs) or
1: that you're not like, it's a big deal. If you let hardly any air in there because we're running huge tubes of air into each other, not knowing what's going on. And they're just laughing at us the whole time. Like anybody who doesn't know if you're in the military, you can't sue the military so they can be pretty loose on Mm. what they want you to do, and you don't have many <laughs> repercussions. But oh. so Ranger First Re- Responder then turned into TCCC,
0: mm. okay,
1: mm-hmm. which now has turned into TECC. And so I just, in, in going through that class and learning about it and learning that I was one of the first groups taught the first part of that, and now I'm one of our TECC instructors, and yeah, I think that stuff's awesome. Yeah. I just think that's a cool f- full circle.
0: Yeah, that's a neat c- connection point. To, well, it really does show you. What one of the things that's really interesting to me is about the the things that we've learned uh, from combat uh, in trauma medicine that can be applied in the real world. You know, back here in the in the uh, in garrison, if you will, right in the mm-hmm. real world. Um, it's really interesting how far advanced that the field medicine is and then we bring that back and you apply it to uh, trauma on the streets here so it's cool to see that yeah you learn new stuff with war there's a whole lot of cost mm-hmm. for it but mm-hmm. it definitely
1: does push the needle of stuff like that
0: mm-hmm. yeah so so you so the pipeline designed to make you quit right and you made it through so there was so what was it that you had in your mind when they're playing these games and they're just torturing you, essentially, right? Trying to f- force you to quit. Um, what was it that kept you moving? Uh, so because I was
1: not the, uh, the greatest citizen before I joined the Army, <laughs> I did not have many people... Most of the people I knew were, su- for one, surprised that I even joined the Army. And... Uh, Nobody thought that I stood any chance at all of becoming a ranger. Like mm. I tried, mm. I'm, I'm no good at sports. I was, uh, I was always on the bench playing football. Uh, I played two years and then I was riding dirt bikes, doing dumb stuff. Uh, and so nobody thought I stood a chance at all of making it other than really my, my, my mom and mainly my dad. And, uh, and that's mostly just because they, they have love to. you they have to what else are they going to say <laughs> uh and i am uh well one of my primary motivators is uh people telling me what i can't do hmm. so the whole time i was just in my head you know like you saying not great things about well I'll prove these everybody wrong and i'll do whatever i want to do and i ain't gonna quit if my body breaks my body breaks but i ain't
0: quitting that's interesting. I think it's fascinating because I've talked to a lot of different dudes who've been through all kinds of different selection processes, and you know, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, et cetera, and even Air Force. They have their you know specialties. that will give them a little nod, um, but all of those guys, the thing they have in common is this willingness to endure. But what's uncommon is the reason why, right? This idea of no quit for it's different for a whole different cast of people, right? For some people, it's you know this is my uh you know i promised my mother and my father that i would not quit on this you know i had a girlfriend who told me i couldn't do it or you know whatever the mechanism might be but there's all these different reasons that um that people have a no quit in them but the but ultimately it boils down to they've made a decision for whatever reason that they would not quit um and if quitting is ever an option they're they're done yeah you can't even
1: As soon as you even crack the door and begin to entertain that it is even a choice, you're starting down the path of figuring out ways to validate to yourself how to get there. And so it's got to be, it's not a choice. Like if my body fails, my body fails, but I'm here to the end. And I would always tell myself like, There are so many people that have come before me. I refuse to believe that I'm not at least as
0: good as the worst of them that made it through. Right. That's an important lesson to learn. I found myself telling someone recently, you know, you've survived 100% of the worst days ever (laughs) that you've experienced. So what makes you think you can't survive the next worst day? You're going to be fine. And I think it's a mindset that you have to develop. Um, and you have to, some people get there naturally they're, you know, they're born with the, uh, you know, uh, Zulu Foxtrot and, uh, nobody can tell them anything and then they will never quit. And other people have to arrive there after some processing time and recognizing that, oh, I can do these things. You know, it's, it's interesting, uh, to see that happen for folks. So, so what happens after you go through Indoc?
1: So the, I got to tell you the last One of the funniest parts or best parts of it was like our culmination drill, like the last week of selection, we were out in the field nonstop and like they wouldn't feed you much, but Mm. then like every two or three days for breakfast, they'd order, like if there were 60 of us there, they'd order food for 140 people. (laughs) And it would show up and they'd say, you guys got 20 minutes to eat every last bite of food here. Or we are not ordering you hot food ever again. So dudes are cramming this food down. Like some of them are going and making themselves throw up just to be able to eat more food. We get it all down and then they're like, all right, awesome. Now we're going to go for a run. I knew that was coming. Yeah. And then so it, it doesn't even matter like there's not even a distance that you're running. It's just basically we're going to run until almost everybody is throwing up. Right. And then they don't feed you again all day. I'm like, well, we got you guys a bunch of food this morning. <laughs> what, you babies? You know, like, how much do you need to eat? <laughs> and then so same thing, it was wet and it was raining the whole time. And so the last couple of nights, um, the, uh, well, I can't remember what the cadre was called. Not RTOs. <laughs> That's us, but uh, so they had a big, uh, they had a big barbecue out there. They had a big fire pit. They had nice tents, uh, and they had a whole huge pile of brand new sleeping bags. And they were grilling up steaks, and we're standing out there soaking wet in the middle of the night, holding our rucksacks over our head, and they're walking around with these fresh steaks and saying, "Hey." All you got to do is drop your rucksack. I'll give you this big old steak. After you eat this steak, you can go and sit by that fire. And then we've got a nice warm sleeping bag for you. You'll be home in the morning. You take a hot shower and you never have to think of this bullshit ever again. And even after like three weeks of putting yourself through misery, there were still multiple dudes that are like, I'm done. I'm done. I want a steak. Um, I, wow. but so that I thought was, that was a, f-
0: no, the psychological warfare, but it just goes to show you how, you know, when you get in duress, how quickly you can fall apart, right? Under pressure. Yeah. And that's the point, right? That's the point of that training is to stress you to a point where you say, I quit. Yeah. As soon as you open that crack, they'll yeah. exploit it. Yeah. 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 Cause that's all they're doing. They're trying to bust the door open a little mm-hmm. bit and get inside your brain and peel back peel back your capacity for for resisting misery so graduated selection which was so awesome because then i
1: got my beret. so how many folks do you think made it through what's the attrition i think the average attrition is give or take the the needs of the unit at the time i think it's about 80 to 90 percent attrition damn usually yeah um I know from my basic training, I think the numbers were about from my basic training of people that started the same basic training as me, there was like 215 of us and like five of us ended up making it all the way through and graduating selection. But very few of those 200 people had ranger contracts, probably even had
0: any right. desire at all. So how many, so of the of the 80% or sorry, of the people that go into RIP, those guys who don't make it through selection end up going back into just infantry units? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> or if they have other specialties, they go into a different area potentially. And, and usually
1: I don't know how true it was, but we were always told like, it wasn't great spots. Like, uh, if you, if you get washed out, you're going to Korea or something like that pretty much. <laughs> So it wasn't like, oh man, I washed out a selection. Now my, uh, my consolation prizes, I'm going to Hawaii. It's like, no,
0: right, <laughs> right? you
1: better be all in. Cause the alternative ain't going to be great.
0: <laughs> That's another good reason to, to not quit, <laughs> to not quit. So right. I, I've,
1: uh, I picked cause you got to pick, uh, there's three ranger battalions, first battalion, second battalion, third battalion, first battalions in Savannah, Georgia, 2nd Battalion's in Tacoma, Washington. 3rd Battalion's in in Benning, Columbus, Georgia. And you got to pick the order that you wanted to try and go. Uh, And I picked Savannah um, because I'd never been by an ocean. Um, And I ended up getting Savannah, 1st Battalion. So I got to 1st Battalion and easy within like six weeks, two months we were deployed to Afghanistan because they were just up in their deployment. They're in the yeah, yeah, yeah and so up. yeah, it was like two weeks. You know, very quickly, like hey, we're here, and you're already late on the us getting ready to get going. Yeah, and how long is the the workup? probably what six months typically. So between the three battalions, you would do you do about a four month four month in country and six months back, and there'd be about a two. Two weekish overlap on the front end and the back end, where you're, where we're with the other teams, getting briefed and debriefed. Mm. Um, and so what? The craziest thing about uh, passing selection and then getting to your unit is you're like, okay, I just did the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. Like, I'm good now. And it is arrived. Yeah, and it is the exact opposite of that. It goes from like, okay, well, there's forty to sixty people in selection and there's eight or ten cadre, you know, like you can still get by and squeak through on some things. No, but not everybody can eyeball everything. Sure. Well, when you get to your unit, you're one of like two or three new people getting to your unit of 40 dudes that have already been to war multiple times together, and you're the new guy coming in their house,
0: they yeah. all wanged
1: it through selection. So that's the last thing that they care about.
0: Right. Yeah, so, at that
1: point, it's merely, selection is merely interesting. Yeah, that was just the ticket in the door. Right. And so you think that you get there and you're the big dog because, you know, before you leave... <laughs> selection like you're walking around base for the that weekend and you're the dude with the tan beret and look at me blah 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 and then you get to where there's only tan berets like you ain't even been to war yet we don't give
0: a shit what you you know what right you've done. and you don't have a tab or anything like yeah.
1: that yeah yeah so i it was really rough um the first little bit my first tour was pretty rough um we went to uh when you say rough what like how is that like just
0: hazing and
1: hazing and yeah. we were uh we it was freezing cold we were above ten thousand feet most of the time yeah. um so it was freezing cold we were just in uh they were fancy tents but they were like tents with heaters and stuff in them but we weren't in hard buildings uh in afghanistan um yeah and i was not like Most of the people in that unit are, are physical specimens. Like I had multiple division one football players in there with me. And like, (laughs) I wasn't even good enough to be on the field on JV football. (laughs) And so, uh, they definitely rode me pretty good on trying to get me in shape and, and up to their, their level. Uh, And then on top of that, just teaching you the job. And that's as on-the-job training as it could be if we, when we're doing it over there. Yeah. Um, but it was so much fun. I had so much fun. Uh, so went th- first deployment to Afghanistan, second deployment to uh, Missoul, Iraq. After my second deployment, they sent me to Ranger School Um because after you go to ranger school, you're kind of in a leadership position, so they don't just send you right away. Um, so after my second deployment, went to ranger school, came back, uh, as a team leader, had two more deployments, one more to Iraq, and then my last one to Afghanistan.
0: What stands out to you about those deployments?
1: Well, like I said, I had a lot of fun. Um, What stands out? That's so broad. So much stuff stands out. How, like, how a properly supported, mission focused team is unstoppable, can accomplish anything in the world. Uh, Just that, that, that the world's just filled with. Regular people, you know, like there ain't, there ain't a us versus them type of thing. Like there was, there's normal women and children everywhere, you know. Like the whole, you should carpet bomb everything's only something that a dumbass would say, you know, because there's regular ass. Pe- the my first tour in Afghanistan, we were on some long mission, and I was a top gunner, and like I had like so many pairs of gloves on, I could barely fit my hands in the butterfly trigger of the 50 cow and I'm up there freezing to death and we roll through a village and there's like little kids running around barefoot in the snow, like having a great time. And you're just like, I don't even, I'm frozen to death up here and these kids are playing around in skirts and shit. (laughs) Um, every part of it, man, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be anything that I am today if it wasn't for every part of that from the structured part through selection, through the mentors I was able to have, uh, you know, the good stuff, the bad stuff, making friends, just learning the ways to do everything that way. I loved it. It was like living a a video game for, you know, especially the being overseas. When you're, uh, my experience, all I can speak for, but if you work for JSOC, as soon as your wheels up heading overseas you basically get whatever you need to accomplish your mission mm. like the it's a it's pretty much a blank check if if you if if you've got a job and you're good at your job they make sure to put you in the position to accomplish your job and there ain't anything beyond that and that's the that's the stuff that can get real powerful you know like t- just to see When something is supported like that, how much regular people can do. Because there ain't nobody, but that was, you know, like you think growing up watching all these movies and stuff like that, that there's these higher echelons of people that never make mistakes Mm. and always know the right thing to do. And they're in charge and they're professionals. And it's like, nope. Everywhere that you think has got crazy good people doing things, they're just people like you and me. Right. You know, like there ain't no
0: secret group of people that are right. totally dialed in all the well, time. And even in those, those high echelon groups, you have morons. Yeah. Right. Who are going to make mistakes and somehow made it through the pipeline. And, and you're like, what the hell is this guy doing here? Um, in every group, right. You have lazy folks. You have people who are high performers. You have all different types. Yeah. Even there's in the- those, even in those tier one groups, it's uh, that's interesting. And mistakes are made, right. I've, it, you know, in every experience I've had, you know, there's never, no operation ever goes flawlessly. And, um, there's always a mistake made. There's always something to learn. There's always something to take away from it. And the outcome might be favorable, right? You know, there's not a single fire still burning in the, you know, in the greater (laughs) Phoenix area, right? We've put them all out, but, but the way we got there was not always flawless. And there's a lot of work that goes into that. And, um, a lot of mistakes are made and we overcome that with resources and overcome that with, you know, skill and, and, and recovery. Um, but these operations are not flawless.
1: No. And I think if you're not making any mistakes, you're not pushing the boundaries far enough. It's okay. And you should make mistakes when you're learning how to do things and trying to figure out how to do things the best way or challenging plans. The issue comes in when you make the same mistake multiple times. It's okay to make a mistake, but you've got to learn from that mistake.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's the the true wisdom, right? Is, uh, I mean, if you can learn from other people's mistakes, that's fantastic. Um, But learning from your own mistakes and and being thoughtful and introspective enough to go uh, to recognize an error that you made, have the humility to own it, and then figure out how you're going to do it better next time and not make the same mistake, right? That takes a a tremendous amount of uh, thoughtful humility, in my opinion. And
1: speaking of which was probably one of the earliest and best lessons that I got from regiment was if there's even the idea that you screwed something up, you just say, I fucked up. That's on me. It won't happen again. And you move forward. There's no such thing as an excuse and it don't even matter if it's not your fault if it somehow was somebody that's underneath you or whatever, like that's it. Nobody wants to hear anything beyond that other than ownership and it won't happen again and we'll move on. Right. And I was really good at trying to talk my way out of situations prior to that or why a thing wasn't my fault or an excuse for this, that or the other. And that didn't, it didn't work very long
0: before I learned that lesson. Yeah. I I had something that, uh, I had to work through too, and I th- you know it's a. Uh, it, I have a funny experience that's flashing through my mind right now. Uh, I'll share with you when I was in in boot camp. Um, I was the guide, right? I don't know if they had that position in army boot camp, but I was like the kind of like the platoon commander, essentially of the recruits. <laughs> so they get all. Basically, I had to do head counts, and I was accountable for all the nonsense. So one day the drill instructor takes all the platoon out stands on formation out in the hot san diego sun and keeps me on the quarter deck and my back is to the platoon they're outside the outside there and i'm inside the quarter deck and he's looking out at the platoon over my shoulder and he's like he starts smoking me push up sit up, side straddle hops until i'm a puddle of sweat and he says guide Until you learn how to, I'll try to use voice, guide. He goes, until you learn how to uh, unfuck these guys, um, you're going to get tortured every day. And so this went on for like 45 minutes. And I'm like, and in my mind, I'm like, how am I supposed to control this platoon when they're standing outside, right? But it was, it's bigger than that, right? When you talk about the leadership principle, you have to take ownership, first of all, for what they're doing. Own that it's your responsibility. And then from there, you can, you can reconcile it. I can't handle the, the fact that Gomez is out there scratching his behind. How do you control that, right? You still, it's still your responsibility to make sure your guys have discipline instilled in them. And that is a, it's a hard lesson to learn um, because learning how to disseminate information and maintain account- and extend the accountability to other people is it's tough. It's a, it's a lesson and it takes work to learn how to do it. Yeah, we would get uh, we
1: would get told you you can't expect what you don't inspect, and so it's always a back and forth between empowerment and micromanaging because mm-hmm. you empower your guys more and more and more, and then something burns you that you are, you know, and then it's like so okay, check. I got yelled at because you screwed something up that I had trusted you to do. Now we're going back to, I got to micromanage you a little bit more. Right. Well, your guys don't like that. And so it's kind, it's constantly a, where are we in the pendulum between empowerment and, and micromanaging? No, and it's a great, yeah. And whenever something lesson. went wrong, it was always, well, you can't expect what you didn't, don't inspect. Why didn't you check that guy's shit? And it's like in your head, you're like, well, he's a grown ass man. <laughs> but outside it's i fucked up it won't happen again right
0: well and it's it's a, a relationship of trust right yeah. so the guy who's saying hey man why are you micromanaging me well because i don't trust you yeah you made me i have to earn you know you you're, you're going to have to earn my trust so that's a if i show up to inspect and your shit is dialed in guess what you've earned some trust and next time i probably won't spend as much time inspecting because you've earned you've earned that so it's uh, and that's I think an important lesson too for the person who's a follower, right? Learning to follow means being trustworthy, right? And your 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 boss or your you know upline has to have faith that you're going to execute on your the expectations that have been given to you. So it's a it's an interesting dynamic when people feel untrusted. Well, are you trustworthy, right? What are you doing to earn that trust? That's a huge. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really important premise in so many
1: ways and it's it's hard because you can't nor do you want to oversee everything like you can't right. do anything else if you're doing that right, but you have to I am a firm believer in the buck stops here, and if somebody falls under me, it's ultimately on me if something doesn't go right, yeah. And so it's you gotta it's always the back
0: and forth. So you know what's interesting about that? There's the the principle of leading up applies also, which I think is interesting. So you talk about micromanaging your subordinates, right? Or or providing uh, leadership to those that you're responsible for. But interestingly, I think sometimes we we fail to recognize we, we blame our bosses for stuff and we're like, Well, they didn't they didn't do X, they didn't do Y. So, what's our responsibility to lead up the chain of command? Well, that's a hard one. Um, that's a,
1: a totally different dynamic of a challenge in the military versus in the fire service because mm-hmm. we are, the fire service is so much less rigid mm-hmm. in its chain of command structure. I'd say it's easier in the fire service to do that because. It's, it's an expectation that we lead our peers up at least like on fire ground or whatever. Um, so I think you just got to be tactful at it. Uh, right. and I, I need to learn that lesson a little better myself and the, the being a little bit more tactful in the way that you approach trying to lead up a superior, right?
0: Well, it's, it's interesting or right? the, I think that uh, good, good bosses are welcoming of that leadership, right? They're welcoming of the information from their subordinates. They have to subjugate their own ego, set it aside and welcome that information. If you think that something that I'm doing is, is bullshit, you need to tell me because if we're, if I'm going down a path that is going to get us in trouble, I am not the grand wizard with all the information, right? There's a, uh, we're a team and it's important that all the players in the team bring their various perspectives to the table. Now there's a time and a place, right? In the middle of a firefight, is it always the, um, the person who's in charge needs to be in charge, right? Same thing. You know, that's, that's just the way it's built out because somebody has to be that the point of responsibility and point of contact, However, if you have good information that's going to affect the outcome, and you sit on it, man, that's not good. Yeah, <laughs> you got to share that information, right? You got to lead up and and find a way to share that information so that we don't uh, step on a landmine, figuratively and, and you know literally. No, I w-
1: it, um, we could we could definitely use a little bit more coordinated leadership training because those are hard because everybody's insecure and so it takes Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of it takes a lot of confidence to be able to say out loud i don't have all the answers i am not the end-all be-all and that somebody with a fraction of the time, rank, or experience might solve this problem better than me. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's something that I think that is, uh, from a leadership perspective, is is really, really important to develop. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not easy because you get thrust into a position of leadership, and someone says, "Here is these bugles," right? And suddenly you are the boss, and now you are responsible for everything that happens here. And and recognizing that you're and you bring up the word insecurity, I think is really important, right? We have to be a little bit vulnerable, and and setting your ego aside is a vulnerable move. But you know, I look around me and I go, man, I as much as much education as I have, as much experience as I have, I haven't seen it all, right? I haven't been to Armor Ranger School, right? You've learned some things that I don't know, and I need to make, I think. In order to be the, the best version of myself that I can be, I need to find out what you know and learn from you. Right. So that means I have to be open to that experience and open to your set of knowledge and open to your opinions and perspective. I don't have to take it all, but I can, t- but I have to listen to it and, and, and do something with that information. Cause like you said earlier, the whole point is
1: to try and learn from other people, not. Only learn through your own bruises, right? Exactly. Otherwise, you'll never get anywhere. Yeah, other you'll be than a, just you'll hurt beat all the time. Heap. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, it's. I think. What was the mentality in battalion that I've tried to apply? Here is my. In order for me to succeed, the best way that I can go about that is my main job is to make sure that my three guys on my truck have everything that they need to do their job the best, is to put them in the position to where I support them in being the best engineer, senior firefighter, and booter possible. And by supporting that, it will secondarily just make my job easier to where all I gotta do is follow them around and narrate. You know? Right. Um, That was, that's the selflessness was something that was important from the Army and that I was told very early on, like, you need to understand that when you're out on on a mission, your primary responsibility is not your own life. It's the three other guys on your team's life. And that if you understand that, everybody is working that way, Mm -hmm. then every single body has six eyes watching their back, not two. And that's where that comes into that force multiplier stuff. And everything is you're, you're in, you're invincible when you're working that way, not as four individuals. And so the, that's where I'm, and it has worked out for me. Well, is I just really try and support my guys so that they can do their positions as best as they can and get them opportunities and it just makes my job easier rather than me trying to focus on how I can control and manage everything because you can't.
0: Right. You can't. Yeah, exactly. What's, what's something that keeps you up at night?
1: I'm worried about active shooter stuff, I would say, Hmm. would be the biggest. I feel like it just seems like that stuff is unfortunately a consistent inevitability at this point. And I kind of always run on a fear of failure type of stuff. And just, uh, I think that we could be a little bit more prepared, a little bit better with that, um, that we just, due to the volume of calls that we run on, that we don't have people hurt more often, just how do you, how do you run half a million things and not just on accident have people get hurt more often, right? right?
0: Yeah, a good friend of mine says that uh, we run around with a four-leaf clover crammed up our wazoo. It's insane how true that is. Right. I mean, we we get away with a lot of stuff frequently, right? It's insane how true that is. Yeah. So how do we I mean, I think the obvious answer is training, but how do we overcome those variables? Well, if I had that figured out better, I would already have tried to have implemented it in some way. <laughs> wow. No, and so what I would say is I think that as a fire service, we're all moving in the same direction, right? We're all working toward um, being better prepared, trying to mitigate all the various hazards that exist out there, right? In this all-hazards environment, and it's it's very difficult to be to train all these different things consistently and develop and kind of raise the bar across all these different skill sets. Um, but because it's not because it's hard doesn't mean we can't do it It means we have to work toward it. Right. And that's the, uh, that's the interesting challenge. I think
1: that I think we could dial those things a little bit better in Mm -hmm. if we, if we went to back to the basics a little bit on, we need to be operating with like a commander's intent. We need to better manage span of control and unity of command and all of these things can be, managed but it can't just be managed by a hundred people looking at the board and everybody trying to do their best on their own it's got to be done through hey here's the commander's intent priority of right triaged importance and here's my span of control of under that of who's managing what because otherwise the scope is just so insane that you won't You'll just be mediocre at everything instead of great because it's just too much.
0: It's all doable. Yeah, yeah. It it, it takes a plan in place, right? A uh, very well considered and uh, well articulated plan, and uh, that's a challenge. It's it's hard to do, but not impossible. And um, you know, so we kind of we kind of. Avoided the whole, or we didn't avoid it. We we kind of didn't get to how you became a, a Phoenix firefighter. We we skipped right over that part. But so here you are on the job. You're a captain now, mm-hmm. and um. And what is it about? What are some non-negotiables for you as a company officer? You know, you've been. and I'm going to frame this in the sense that you've been through a pipeline of leadership training and skills for many many years, and have had a lot of different experiences, a variety of experiences at, at all levels from being a line troop, you know, in the army and line firefighter and, and on up to leadership roles. So when you think about what's most important to you, right, what what are your non-negotiables?
1: I won't ask anybody to do something that I haven't or won't do myself. Um, We had, in regiment, NCOs had a higher standard uh, across the board than you did when you first got in for PT tests, for everything. And the the thought process behind it is if your boss is doing more than you, how can you ever question what you're supposed to be doing? You can't. They're at the front of the line running. They gotta run faster, they gotta run further. How are you gonna bitch about the littler amount that you have to do? Mm. And so the leading by example and the never asking anybody to do anything that you're not willing to do yourself, I think will get you so far in 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 life. Um and then just recognizing that I am responsible for three other families well-being and how much how much more dumb shit i would be willing to put myself in danger of without ever even batting an eyelash to absolutely not am i comfortable with somebody else doing something if the outcome is me potentially having to talk to their wife or husband or kids or parents about some sort of bad outcome. Um, and then just w- like work hard. I'll give you the, I'll give you everything I got if you're trying. If, if you're not trying and you don't take this stuff serious, like I don't have, I'm not good with that, with those situations. Yeah, you know, I'll give you the world if if you're trying, but if you're not, you're not going to get much of my attention or time.
0: Hmm. I love all that. I love those things. The one that that you mentioned that really stands out to me is that is recognizing that you have a stewardship over three human beings, a responsibility, and that responsibility is not just those uh, those individuals. It's all the individuals connected to them. You yeah, know, if anything happens to them, you owe them an explanation. Yeah. Uh, for what's happening what's taking place and because um, it's on you yeah ultimately did you did you train them did you supervise them did you did, did were your skills intact like what things did you do or not do that allowed this thing to take place and you know even we talk about ownership right if that if that person that firefighter made a mistake on the fire ground well did you train them did you hold them accountable for a skill set right what your responsibility goes deep and sometimes folks get into that front right seat and they're like, sweet, I got to push buttons and talk on the radio. Um, but your responsibility, your stewardship is much, much more profound than that and um, extends to all those people that you talked about, not to belabor it, but I think it's such an important point. Yeah. So, man, well, I, I think uh, I want to, I'm going to peel this off right there. There's uh, I want to ask you a couple rapid fire questions. Just first thing that comes to your mind. What's something that you believe that other people think is crazy? That we can solve all these problems we got. <laughs> Good, yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> what's what's one piece of advice that you've been given? Uh, what's one great piece of advice that you've been given? Don't be afraid to ask for help.
1: Like it's only in your 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 ego will so often be the thing that stops you from getting what you need. Because you're afraid to say that you've done something wrong, or you need help, or you don't know the answer, or you're scared, or whatever it is, it's often, our, your pride will be the biggest problem most of the time. And that if you can shed that, it's it's hard, everybody fails at it all the time, but as long as you recognize that that's one of your enemies, I think that's important.
0: I love that. All right, so this podcast is titled the Fireground Fitness Podcast. So, what does being fireground fit mean to you? <laughs> I saw that. Uh, that's a. Uh, I'm the last person to talk to about fitness.
1: Um, since I have no room to speak about physical fitness stuff, with that, I'd I'd ra- I'd rather wrap it into like the the mental health stuff of. There is, there is a significant cost to this job, and no one gets away from paying that price. Uh, and if you're not careful, you will end up a, a miserable, alone alcoholic um, down the road because we eat everybody's worst day all day long. And that goes somewhere, uh, for everyone. No one's immune to that. And so, recognizing that you're just a normal human being, that things affect you, and that you're willing to ask for help, and that you, I, um, therapy. Therapy's super important. I was. I thought I was too tough to have a therapist. Uh, until I was about 30 years old, and that was probably some of the 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 dumbest thought processes that I've ever had. Um, and that I <laughs> I got a V8 therapist, I got a fire department therapist, I got a marriage therapist, I got a team of them, um, and just like the the alternative to thinking that you can gut through all of this stuff on your own will just end up making you alone and miserable. And why, you know, like, if something's broken on your car, you don't ignore it, you fix it. It's not necessarily your car's fault that something broke on there, but it's your fault if you ignore it. And, you know, like, so just especially with us, if we've got such an amazing peer support program and with the, is it the, the Tiger Law or what? where we have all the access yeah, to the-, the Craig Tiger Act. Yeah. Where we basically have access to free therapy. Like if you're not using that, you're an idiot because you're not going to be the exception that's somehow immune to this. Right. It's going to catch up with you at some point. Yeah, And so get in front of that early rather than- waiting until it's too ba- too late and you look back um, because this is a, a hard job and we need everybody at 100% to, to get through this stuff. And that's the, the mental part is something that I think as young, especially as young men who think that they're always the problem solvers are always intimidated bringing problems. And that wraps back into the pride thing. Yeah, that's oh, that only exists in your head. It's not a real thing. You're you're way tougher if you can say out loud, "Hey, I'm I'm messed up right now. I need some help." You know, like that's so much tougher than the "Yeah, I'm good. I'm good." Right?
0: No, I appreciate you saying that. That's a very important important thought, an important premise uh, when it comes to fireground fitness is so much more than just physical fitness it's it is multi-pronged and so i'm glad you brought that piece up because it's you got to take care of the brain you know your uh your brain housing group uh controls the entire system and uh if you're not taking care if you're not flossing your mind you're not flossing your brain and uh taking care of your mental health you're it's a slow decay and it's a problem so you got to root that out so i appreciate you bringing that up yeah and i appreciate you sitting down and 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 sharing a little bit of your story with me and, and with the gang and, or whoever's listening whoever's out there all y'all um, so Matt thank you no this was awesome thank you I appreciate it hey folks that's all we have for today thank you so much for tuning in Matt thank you for sharing your time and your talents with us if you are enjoying this podcast get on over to Apple Podcasts rate and review the podcast it will help draw other folks in and give them an opportunity to listen to the cool content that you're listening to Also, think about what you've learned today. Lessons picked up that Matt shared with us that you can take and apply in your own life in whatever way you choose. Now, the most important thing is that you go on out there and get some.